If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Our opening illustration last Sunday was from 1843. We're going to fast forward 20 years. On Christmas Day, 1863, in the midst of the American Civil War, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem titled Christmas Bells, which was later set to music and became known by the first line of the poem, which may be how you know it, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. After describing the sound of the church bells that Christmas morning, Longfellow references in verses that aren't typically sung in the song, uh, he references the canons of war and how it seemed as if an earthquake was splitting the nation into two parts. Seeing all of this, he says in the sixth stanza, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I think civil war or not, we can all relate in some measure to that despair. As we look back over just the past year, peaceful is probably not the way that we would describe it in many ways. We might think of the war in Ukraine, which represents just one of so many other wars that are happening in our world and all of the heartache that, uh, that it continues to cause to people on both sides of that conflict. We could look at our political climate and we see how divided we are as a nation, though again, we're not alone in that. Nations other than the, the United States uh, know what it is to have divisiveness, divisiveness within government and actually political division seems to be much more common than agreement or even simple civility. We might remember the heart-wrenching shooting at Robb Elementary, which was just one of over 600 mass shootings in our nation this year. Or we could look at the reports of abuse within our denomination and the fact that these instances have brought turmoil, not peace, into people's lives. And those are just broader issues. Of course, we could go into our own lives and our own relationships. We could think about the lack of peace between friends and family, the fights in our homes and among those that we love, the breakdown of relationships that we know, the, the, the distance between us, us and others, a brief consideration of the world at large and of our individual lives makes it seem that Longfellow is right to bow his head in despair and announce that there is no peace on earth. And yet, that's what the angels told us was coming with the first advent of Jesus, isn't it? They said, Jesus has arrived, therefore, peace on earth. Whether they sung those words or shouted them, it doesn't really matter. The heavenly host said to the shepherds and to all of us in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And yet, from the moment that Jesus arrived, he didn't seem to bring a whole lot of peace. When Herod heard from the Magi about his birth, as we read, he responded with a mass genocide on all male children ages two and under. Can you imagine? All male children ages two and under killed in an effort to kill Jesus. And when Jesus then later began his ministry, it seems to bring about division more than peace with people either joyfully accepting him or vehemently rejecting him. 
of course, Jesus is not oblivious to the division that he is causing in his ministry. In fact, in Luke 12, 51 through 53, he seems to say the opposite of what the angels did. If there's key moments of peace within Luke's gospel, the first is found in the angel's announcement, and the second is found here in Luke 12. And this is what Jesus tells the crowd. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? To which we all say, yes, that's what we do think, Jesus. And what does he say? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus knew that then as well as now, allegiance to him would cause division, even in our most basic human relationships. He reminds us that it's foolish to imagine that following Jesus means everyone will be happy with us. And Jesus also says if they persecuted him, they will most certainly persecute his followers. This is nothing to be surprised at, but still, there's surprise at the fact that the angels said there would be peace on earth, and there doesn't seem to be peace on earth. In Luke's gospel, much of this division about Jesus and the lack of peace comes to a head at the triumphal entry, which is recorded here in Luke 19, which is probably the third key reference to peace that we find in Luke's gospel. It's a passage, actually, that marks the end of Luke's travel narrative that makes up chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through chapter 12, verse 27, and it forms a bridge between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and then the events of the final week of his life in that city. As far as Luke's telling of the story, this is actually Luke 19 and the triumphal entry. This is a culminating point. It's a moment uh, of, of, that his readers have been waiting for. All the way back in chapter 9, soon after his first prediction of his coming death and resurrection, Luke tells us in verse 51 and verse 53 of that chapter that Jesus had set his face with determination to go to Jerusalem. And he reminds his disciples of that reality all the way up until this moment when he actually arrives there. And so, as he arrives into Jerusalem, we ask this question. Is this the moment? Is this the moment that Jesus is going to bring peace on earth? Is this when he's going to rule and reign as king over this world? Is this when from, as the hymn says, pole to pole, all wars will cease absorbed in prayer and praise? Is this when the dividing walls between us will finally be broken down forever? As we look together at Luke 19, 28 through 44, my hope is that we will discover or maybe rediscover this truth. Jesus alone brings peace in heaven and on earth. Jesus alone brings peace in heaven and on earth. And he's doing it despite the division that he brings and that still exists in our world. So let's read Luke 19. I'll just read verses 28 through 40 for now as we think on this idea that Jesus alone brings peace in heaven and on earth. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. This is what God's word says. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found, uh, found it uh, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, the colt they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Uh, these events here happen at the beginning of the week that marked the celebration of Passover, which commemorated when the Jewish people were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Israelites, therefore, would make this journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and Jesus, too, was heading to the city. We find in, in verse 29 that Jerusalem is almost visible as Jesus enters Bethpage and Bethany just east of Jerusalem, which lay hidden on the other side of the Mount of Olives. These events happened not only in the midst of the Passover, but also at the moment when the fervor over Jesus was, was at its, its peak. Just as Jesus had come into the world in the fullness of time, so too he's now going to enter into Jerusalem at the perfect time, but a perfect time that is also a very volatile time. In the incarnation, he entered the world in an unexpected way. We just sang how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So how is he going to enter into Jerusalem? Well, he could have just walked in through one of the gates with the other pilgrims. Maybe he'd want to go in sort of incognito since this opposition against him is rising. Maybe you could imagine him in a large hooded cloak of some kind walking around so nobody would recognize him. But instead we find that in this moment, his glory, in a way unlike any other time in his ministry, his glory is on full display in this final week. And as he enters the city, we find that, that it was a very public entrance and that resulted in the, the disciples proclaiming him as king. Our passage says that his entrance began first with him acquiring the colt of a donkey to ride on. And the emphasis in this first part of the narrative appears to be on the fact that Jesus is in complete control. He, he knew what his entrance into Jerusalem would lead to, and he also knew what riding on this colt would represent, that it would be a blatant claim to his messiahship and to his role as the king of Israel. The imagery here is of a cult that no one had ridden before. So a cult that is consecrated for a specific purpose. And Matthew ties this act of Jesus specifically to the prophecy of Isaiah, of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and have, having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? This time of year, we often have images of Mary pregnant with Jesus riding on a donkey into Bethlehem, which may or may not have been the case, but if it was, it would have emphasized the lowliness of Jesus' birth. 
And the use of a donkey here symbolizes humility. That Jesus was not a king coming to ruthlessly reign over his people, but he was coming with grace and humility. A conquering king would arrive on a stallion of some kind, but Jesus comes on a donkey because he's come to bring peace. There seem to also to be echoes of Solomon riding on King David's mule in 1 Kings 1 as the people crown him as the king. And here Jesus is the king in the line of King David. He is the promised seed of David who was greater than Solomon and who would reign on his throne as the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. But the arrival of Jesus is also a restoration of the days before there was a king in Israel. There's so many prophecies and fulfillments happening here. The people of Samuel's day, you'll remember, begged God for a king. They wanted a king like all the nations. And God gave them their wish, despite him knowing that of all the evil that the king would do to the people and all the kings of Israel would do to the people. God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 that their desire for a king was not a rejection of Samuel, but a rejection of God from being their king. And now God in the person of Jesus is being enthroned, re-enthroned, we might say, as the king of Israel. The picture of this ride into Jerusalem is painted vividly in verses 35 to 38. We see the disciples removing their coats and other garments and forming a saddle of sorts for Jesus on this donkey. And as he comes, the company of disciples following him and those who were welcoming him covered his path with their coats like a red carpet of sorts. This king was coming and he's coming in humility, but the people were also willingly humbling themselves before him. And all the while, he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Verse 37 says that he was now on the other side of the Mount of Olives, the side closest to Jerusalem, and he's making his descent down into the Kidron Valley where he would then climb up the other side, uh, entering into one of the eastern gates of the city. And there's more symbolism here and more fulfillment as the Mount of Olives recalls the vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 11 when in the exile the glory of God departed from the temple and it rested over the mountains east of Jerusalem. It rested over the Mount of Olives, the glory of God did. And the prophecies of Ezekiel foretell of a day when the glory would re-enter the city. And how would it re-enter the city? It would come through that east gate. And so Jesus in some way must represent the the return of the glory of God into the city of Jerusalem. I wonder if you can see it all in your mind's eye. If you can see Jesus descending the Mount of Olives, the city now in view, the temple before his eyes, and at this sight of the city and of Jesus riding a colt towards its gates, of all of Jesus' disciples understand what's going on and they just erupt in praise to God. They rejoice, they're filled with joy, and they lift up their voices in loud shouts of praise to Jesus, their Messiah. Luke tells us that they praised him for all of the mighty works that they had seen. And in light of all that Jesus had done and all that he was, they erupted in this song of praise taken from Psalm 118.26. It was a traditional welcome into the city of Jerusalem, but one to which the, the crowd adds the words, the king. They say, blessed is the king Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be Jesus, the Messiah, the deliverer, the rescuer of his people that has now finally come to us. Well, Luke not only takes us back to the Old Testament prophecies, but he also takes us back to the birth announcement of Jesus. The words, 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest echo the praise of the angels that rang in the ears of the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth when they sang out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. We're even reminded of the songs of Mary and the song of Zechariah and the song of Simeon and the praises of Anna in the temple as they all announced that a baby born in Bethlehem was the one all Israel had been waiting for, that he's the son of David, he's the Messiah King, and now all the disciples agree with those witnesses from chapters 1 and 2, and they shout about the peace that Jesus will bring and about the glory that he deserves. Now, we're here in this passage during this Christmas season on this Sunday in which we meditate on peace because this scene helps us to see in some ways how the angels were right in their proclamation of peace and how Jesus was also right in his prediction of division because Jesus was bringing peace in a different way. He was bringing peace between God and humanity, but also peace to the whole earth and to all the relationships and all the nations and all the people within this world. One way that we can say it and the way that we'll say it today is that he came to bring peace in heaven and peace on earth. And so I want us to think about those two things. Consider first what we mean by peace in heaven. Jesus came to bring peace in heaven. Did you catch that difference between what the crowds are shouting and what the angels sang or shouted? The crowd shouts in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Even here in the most seemingly political move of Jesus's ministry, we're reminded that Jesus was not coming to oust the Roman rulers, but that his mission in Jerusalem was to die and to rise again and thereby dethrone death, not Caesar. He was coming to make peace between God and humanity. He was coming in at Passover as the Passover lamb, ready to lay down his life to appease the wrath of God. Jesus entered Jerusalem to make peace with God on our behalf, to take the full force of God's wrath against our sin. All of our sin is rebellion against King Jesus. And those who rebel against the king pay for such rebellion with their lives. We deserve to face the full force of the wrath of God. But Jesus entered into our world and was now entering into Jerusalem. Why? To make peace in heaven. Jesus, in dying on the cross, took the wrath of God against sin and made it possible for us to know peace in heaven. If there's any doubt about what this represented, the response of the Pharisees confirmed the bold statement that Jesus was making. They saw everything that was happening happening and they caught the symbolism. So they said to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. They're, they're crowning you as king. They are exalting you as the Messiah. Often Jesus would tell people to keep things secret, not tell anyone who he was. But on this day, Jesus does not silence the crowd. Instead, he says, if they are quiet, then the very rocks are going to sing his praise. As we think about Jesus bringing peace in heaven, we find that he's able to do so not only because he's the fulfillment of all the royal prophecies of the Old Testament, but also because he's come as the perfect priest and prophet. His role as king is clear in this triumphal entry, but the passage says more. And we see in verses 45 and 46 that he clears the temple 
of the sin that was present there because he is a priest who desires the holiness of that temple. And then in chapter, verses 47 and 48 of this same chapter, he shows that he's the greatest prophet and teacher in Israel as he astounds the crowd with his words. So he's come to reign over us in love as our king. He's come to make atonement for us as a priest as well as to intercede for us through his life and death. And he is the teacher who leads us into all truth and wisdom as we walk through this life. He alone is the prince of peace. Why? Because he alone is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom. And it carries this idea of making all things right. And so Jesus, in his role as prophet, priest, and king, brings shalom and order to all of the broken places in our souls and in our world. He enters Jerusalem, and even in the fact that he is rejected as all three of these roles, even in that, that act, he is able to make peace in heaven through the blood of his cross. So there's an invitation in this passage, I think, to join with the crowd. There's an invitation at Christmas as King Jesus comes into the world to honor him as the Magi did, not as Herod did in trying to destroy him. There's an invitation to join in all of these with all of these, these people and acknowledge that Jesus is king. We're invited by the angels to glorify Christ as the one who has made peace with God possible in his coming as our prophet, priest, and king. And in his coming, he's also made it possible for there to be peace on earth. Peace in heaven, but also peace on earth. It would seem that in some sense, there was hope that true peace on earth could have come as Jesus entered Jerusalem that day. Now, Jesus knew exactly what was gonna happen. He knew that he would be rejected, and this was all part of the Father's plan, but there does seem to be some sense in which there was this thought that as he entered that day, that peace on earth could come because he laments the fact that it didn't. Look at verses 41 through 44 of Luke 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The worship of Jesus by the, the crowd revealed that the heart of the Pharisees was to reject Jesus as king, let alone as a prophet or a teacher. And, it, and such, in fact, was the majority opinion of the people in Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus weeps over this city when he arrives. This was supposed to be a day of rejoicing for the entire city, for the entire world. This was the day he could have been crowned king. But Jesus entered Jerusalem knowing that, that his people would not accept the peace that he offered. Therefore, he laments the blindness of those that he had come to save. And their blindness meant that the lack of peace would continue and would increase. Jesus predicts that a day was coming when that city would be destroyed and the temple would be taken down and it would happen not long after his resurrection in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The tears of Jesus over Jerusalem invite our own tears. It's right to be filled with sorrow over the hatred and the war and the division and the lack of peace 
in this world, and specifically it's right to mourn that these things exist because our hearts naturally reject Jesus, the Prince of Peace. In our blindness, we are ignorant to the things that make for peace. We're ignorant of the person who makes peace. And so we continue to rip our world and one another apart. And until Jesus returns and reigns as king, division and strife will mark and mar our lives and our world. And yet, even as we wait, there is a foretaste of peace in the gospel. Remember what we saw in Ephesians 2 earlier this year. After speaking about our alienation from God at the beginning of of Ephesians 2, and how Jesus has made it possible for us to be brought near to God, which is that peace in heaven that we've been talking about, then Paul describes the division between Jews and Gentiles, and he says this in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 18. Notice the word peace repeated many times in this passage. Ephesians 2, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's what's going on. Because Jesus has made peace in heaven, peace on earth amongst one another is possible. But it's only possible, Paul says, through the blood of Jesus. This is how we are brought near to God through the blood of Christ, and it's also how we are brought near to one another. Here's the irony, actually. The irony is that the gospel comes to the human heart, and Jesus says, Luke 12, that it causes division. It causes division between those who receive Christ and those who reject Christ. But... (laughs) The gospel is also the only hope that we have for any kind of real unity. It's the only hope that we have for peace on earth. It's the gospel that actually tears down walls of division. It's the gospel that makes us children of God and children of God who look like their father. Therefore, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. So into our despair at the absence of peace, which is real and true. Jesus' incarnation and his exaltation as king invite us to be those who bring peace on earth as he has. Not the perfect peace of his coming kingdom, but peace nonetheless. Not, Not peace that denies the division that the gospel brings, but peace nonetheless. And the clearest place that peace and harmony is found is here in the church, amongst the people of God. The family of God, united across all potential lines of division, is the greatest expression of peace on earth in this present age. Longfellow concludes his poem with hope. Says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'm not sure what to make of everything that Longfellow says in that verse, 
But I think he's right in this. I think he's right to take comfort in the fact that God is not dead. I think that's a very biblical thing, a very Luke gospel thing to do. Because if you continue to read Luke's gospel, you will find that the final proclamation, maybe what I would say is the fourth major proclamation of peace, is found on the lips of the resurrected Jesus. The first one is found there when the angels announce uh, peace on earth. The second one is there in Luke 12 when Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I'm come to bring division. The third one is here in Luke 19, would that you understood what brings peace and, and the announcement that there's peace in heaven. But the final one comes on the lips of Jesus when he walks into a room of frightened disciples and says what? Peace be to you. Peace be to you. He says to his disciples who are filled with fear, who are filled with sorrow at the threats in the world all around them, that he, in his resurrection presence, brings peace. And we who have been born again through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. There is peace in heaven because of Christ's incarnation, because of his crucifixion, because of his resurrection, and because of his exaltation. We have peace in heaven. And we also know peace on earth. Particularly we know it amongst we who are children of God through faith in Christ. And one day, because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's going to be a kingdom that's filled with everlasting peace. Can you imagine? Everlasting peace. So, may we, in response to this peace that Christ has brought through his blood, may we be those who are always submitting our lives to the rule of King Jesus. King Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That's how we respond to his entrance into the world, is by submitting our lives to his rule. And may we also reflect him as we seek to be those who make peace. We make peace through the proclamation of the gospel of peace, telling people that there can be peace in heaven between them and God. And that there can be peace between them and those that are very unlike them. We proclaim peace through the proclamation of the gospel and through living as children of God in this world and specifically as the body of Christ, seeking to represent what the, the peace that Christ has brought to us in the gospel. And so we take up the cry, not only of the angels, but we take up the cry of the crowd here on this Christmas the crowd that understood, and we say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect for a moment on God's word, and then I will pray and we'll close with a song. Father, we join with the angels, we join with the crowd and say that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the one who has come to bring peace and he alone can bring peace in heaven and peace on earth. Lord, would you help us to submit to his rule? Would you help us to be those who look like you? that we would be called children of God because we are those that 
make peace in this world. We know that division will exist. We know that even your gospel will cause division in this world. But we know that for, for those, for we who have been blind but had our eyes open to the, the beauty of the gospel, that it is what can draw us together. It's the only thing that can bring peace to our lives. Let's call this in Christ's name. Amen.